Welcome to episode 10 of Between Two Docs, where it's just two docs talking about COVID, no politics, no media hype. Uh, we're not employed by a big pharma, and we're just here to answer your questions and address hot topics in the news and uh, get perspectives from some folks in the community. So today, we're going to have um, three segments. We're going to start off with the news. Um, we have a special guest uh, who is a licensed social worker who will be joining us to talk about the uh, more of the psychosocial aspects of COVID. And then we're going to get to some of your questions. Uh, Toby, we're finally getting to your question. It's been a couple of weeks, but we did it. Um, so with that, let's jump into the news. And uh, I'm going to take on uh, a topic that uh, pretty much by now, if you're watching this, everybody's heard about hydroxychloroquine probably 100 times over in the last week, if not more. And again, a focus that both of us have here is, is on the actual science. Um, we're going to take away the politics and the news hype. So there is a study uh, published in New England Journal of Medicine, uh, July 23rd. It was done in Brazil. It's a uh, multi-center um, study that was done on, uh, they enrolled 504 patients who had been tested positive, confirmed COVID. And they were defined as being mild to moderate by needing less than uh, four liters of oxygen. So if they had needs for more oxygen than that, they would have considered them severe. They were excluded from the study. And the patients were randomized to three groups of, uh, of study. One was hydroxychloroquine, um, 400 milligrams twice a day. Another one was hydroxychloroquine, 400 milligrams twice a day, plus azithromycin, 500 milligrams daily for seven days. And then the other was standard care. Uh, and standard care um, could have been a mishmash of several things, uh, including just supportive things with uh, fever reducers, pain medicines, steroids, uh, et cetera. Um, the patients uh, had to be hospitalized initially for this, and they had to be at least 14 days or less from onset of symptoms, which is something I'll come back to. Um, the outcome was uh, looked at at both seven days and 15 days. And what they looked at were a, a spectrum where, where they categorized the patients into um, what they called it an ordinal scale. So a number one in the ordinal scale was the patient was at home, had no limitations. Great, they're back to normal. Number seven, the other end of that was the patient died. Um, so when they looked at where the patients fell in these three groups um, at day seven and day 15, there was no statistically significant difference in the ordinal, ordinal scale for each. So there's a breakdown of, of, of each where the, the groups subdivided and they were not significantly different between each group. Now, there are some problems with the study as there are problems with all studies. There is no such thing as a perfect study. And there's also no such thing as one study that answers the question um, beyond all reasonable doubt. There's, this is the way medicine and science works and has worked for you know probably the better part of 100 years. Um, the groups all had uh, a dosing of steroids in them. Uh, about 20% in each group got steroids. Now, we know that steroids uh, from the recovery trial have proven to be effective in reducing the severity uh, and symptoms of COVID. So keep that in mind. Uh, also, a lot of these folks were already on azithromycin prior to getting randomized into the study. Um, so there's potential confounding there. And then, you know, one of the, the problems with this is, is how they got patients who were not in the hospital, who got discharged, how they got their information on them. Basically, it was through a telephone survey. 
And there's been uh, a lot of question about telephone surveys in the past in other areas of medicine. It's not unique to COVID. Um, there is some uh, potential issues with how the patients are interpreting questions and how they're reporting. Um, but nonetheless, that is what the study was. Um, so I think the takeaway from this, obviously, that's there is that there is no difference between hydroxychloroquine versus hydroxychloroquine azithromycin versus standard care. However, what I still want to see in the study that probably is, is yet to be out is a study that looks at this in a little bit simpler way with earlier enrolled patients, i.e. best case scenario, maybe five to seven days from onset of symptoms. Because if there's any evidence in a test tube or in cell culture models of hydroxychloroquine being antiviral, that, the that theoretically would be early in the process. If you get to patients late with COVID, with just about anything we're looking at, the results are not as good. So again, it's gonna be one of those things that fits into the, the data we have on hydroxychloroquine, it's not going to be the end-all be-all, and there are still a couple other ones that are coming down the pike to be looking out for. Makes your head spin. It makes my head spin. Amazing. It makes all of our collective heads spin. Yep. But uh, as Dr. Valentino mentioned, uh, it's being studied aggressively, and most of the studies at this point do not show benefit uh, yet. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. The, the, the question in the news and the, the news topic for me this week is, kids and the term super spreaders and uh you know what does it all mean especially as we're coming down uh towards the start of school in most of our areas in the country so uh you know children in general are super spreaders of everything of all respiratory germs um they're sort of disgusting they snot they sneeze they cough uh they're kids they, they don't think about the the down the line issues with with, with their behaviors but, you know, it doesn't seem like they're major transmitters of this virus. It's a little bit of an, of an odd scenario. So the question is, are kids less susceptible to getting it or are kids less likely to transmit it once they have it? And the answer probably lies in a little bit of each. So by way of background, uh, of all the laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 cases up until about June of this year, only 2 to 5% of those folks were less than 18 as a, on earth, there's 30% 30, 30 of the population is under 18. So there's a mismatch there. So only two to 5% were under 18, although testing is being ramped up and we are seeing a trend towards younger people now in the United States. But there's theories about susceptibility here. One theory is that, you know, kids were less exposed to the virus. Schools were shut down. Uh, they were distanced. Uh, so it's possible that they didn't have exposure and were less susceptible. The other thoughts are maybe children mount a more robust immune response to the virus, giving them a better shot at knocking it out before it gets serious. Mm -hmm. The other thought is that, you know, the receptor that the virus uses to attach is less mature in children, making it harder for the virus to get in and cause an infection. infection. Uh, the other piece of this likely is that, you know, younger people typically don't have much chronic disease. We don't see much hypertension, diabetes, uh, and severe illness that makes COVID-19 uh, much more uh, susceptible, in, in the, makes those folks much more susceptible. Uh, the other piece to this is, is the spreading piece. And we see, we're seeing data come out on this uh, pretty rapidly at this point. Uh, what we saw uh, recently out of, I believe it was in Chicago, is that kids have higher concentrations of the virus in their upper airway than older children and adults. Could this make them more infectious? We're not sure. Uh, the vast majority of this kids in this group, despite the fact that they may have a lot of viral particles, 
they don't have symptoms and that makes them less likely to transmit the disease. So even though you're harboring a lot of virus, if you're not coughing and sneezing and sharing your droplets, it's tougher to spread. So while they might have more, they might not be spreading it. The other popular study out of South Korea looked at kids between the ages of zero and 10 and kids between the ages of 10 and 19. And what they saw is that those in the younger group were much more likely, much, I'm sorry, much less likely to spread the disease, whereas those in the 10 to 19 year old group were as likely as adults to spread the disease. There were some problems with that study. Schools were closed during that study and there were some tracing issues. We're not sure who the primary person in the household was to get COVID-19 but it does look like susceptibility and spread from kids is lower. We need a lot more in the way of studies uh, and good studies like Dr. Valentino mentioned to look at this a little bit further. And this obviously has huge implications on the upcoming school year and deciding whether to open or not. So the takeaway here is that susceptibility and infection ability or infection rate does look lower, but we still need more data on both of these statistics. For the second part of our show today, I have the honor of introducing Edie Weinstein, MSW LSW, which stands for Masters in Social Work and Licensed Social Worker. She is a licensed social worker, a psychotherapist, an interfaith minister, journalist, and a presenter who calls herself an optimistic with a Y. So not optimistic, but optimistic, who sees the world through the eyes of possibility and teaches other, others to do the same. Uh, I've known Edie for a long time. She's a warm, wonderful person, and it's our pleasure to have her here today. And I'm going to launch into the first question that we have for her. And the first question I have today is, how has your role as a counselor slash social worker slash therapist changed during the pandemic? Dramatically. Um, I've, for 40 some years, I've worked with people who are predisposed to depression and anxiety. And as you can imagine, emotions are heightened now. Um, so a lot of the clients that I see, and I'm doing it via telehealth, and it's been probably four months and with no um, specific end in sight, and I'm happy to work from home, by the way, um, what I find with my clients is that they're noticing other symptoms as well. If they already have anxiety, it's more intense because the pandemic, um, it, there's no playbook for a pandemic. We have no idea how, you know, what each day is going to hold. So my clients are already accustomed to dealing with uncertainty. There's even more uncertainty with their jobs, with their health, with their family and friends' health, with how long we're going to be in quarantine. Um, so that's changed dramatically. But the other thing that's really interesting is that some of them really like um, being at home because they're, you know, they're dealing with social anxiety. So if they're kids, and I work with children also, they like not being in a school classroom. They like being at home. If these are adults with social anxiety, they like being in their nice, safe little haven. So it's changed there. Um, I'm dealing with a lot more crisis because I do have clients, and I'll address this at the very end, um, who were planning on leaving marriages, and now I can't. And what I tell them, I always ask, are you safe? And if they tell me they're safe, and I say, okay, let's figure out coping strategies to deal with living under the same roof with somebody that you no longer want to live under the same roof with. And I talk to them about resources that if things change, here's where you go for support in addition to what I'm offering you. Well, you know, I, I think that leads into the next question. So Dr. Cohen and I talk a lot about the, uh, the physical aspects of, of how COVID impacts people, but can you talk a little bit about um, what you're seeing in terms of the effect of job loss? Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned social isolation, which, you know, for introverts isn't bad, but for extroverts is a problem. And then, you know, the pandemic-related anxiety, depression elements um, that factor into it. 
Absolutely. It's been called quarantine brain. Um, that's not a medical term. I don't know if you're ever going to see it in the DSM, but it's, you know, it's, it's a thing. Um, it's real. There's lack of executive function, decision-making difficulties. There's fogginess of brain fog, forgetfulness, lack of motivation. Why should I bother getting out of bed? Um, you know, I'm afraid of what the day is going to bring. Uh, there's also a sense of, of protective amnesia is what I call it. And I don't, again, I didn't research it to know if that's what other people are calling it. But there are times when I'm out taking a walk in my neighborhood and it's a gorgeous day and I almost forget that there are people dying. I almost forget that there are people who, I mean, I live alone, but I have wonderful supports. I, you know, I almost forget that there are people who don't have their jobs, who are in dire straits. And we need that. We need to have a sense of of, it's a coping skill. We need to have a sense of protective amnesia, that there need to be pockets of our lives where we're not living in fear. So living in fear, all the what ifs, you know, the uncertainty of it. Um, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow? What am I going to wake up to? Who do I know that's going to be sick? Um, what if I die alone? You know, all of those fears, the natural human fears that we have anyway, are exacerbated with this. Um, the other thing is, is that Actually, we're going to talk about this a little later about the social isolation that goes that goes along with it. Um, one of the things I encourage people to do is find ways to take care of themselves in the midst of fears. Focus on what is working for you. Focus on the supports that you do have. Um, you know, I'm looking around my living room, and my living room is now my gym. Uh, you know, I've got a little mini trampoline. I've got a little exercise bike. I'm pointing over here to all those big exercise balls, yoga mat, weights. So take time during the day to do something physical to get your mind off of the, you know, the, the mental treadmill that you're on. Those are, those are great points. And, and I think, you know, combined with that, not only are you a therapist, but you've always championed human touch. You're mm-hmm. a hugger. You're warm. You're, you're a kind human being. I've always known you to be the, the kindest of human beings. Oh my goodness. And, and how, do we, how do we get back to a time where we're not grossed out by human contact? I mean, will we ever high five, handshake, and hug again without having that protective impulse to be like, ooh, you know what? I probably shouldn't be doing this. Right. Well, what, um, just to, to put a little framework about what Harris is talking about, we've known each other 30 years. His, the, full disclosure here, his cousin is my best friend's husband. So we've, you know, we've been at, at Cohen family gatherings for, for decades. So he, and he's a great hugger too, by the way. Um, but I call myself a hug mobster armed with love. Back in 2014, I brought a group of friends to 30th Street Station in Philadelphia to do a free hugs flash mob. And it became a passion because a few months later, I had a heart attack. And as part of my cardiac rehab, I walked around Doylestown, a little town near where I live, and started doing free hugs. So since then, I've hugged people in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, New York, Maryland, DC, hugged in front of the White House a few times, um, Oregon, uh, Canada, and then two years ago, I hugged my way across Ireland. So hugging is a way of life for me, and boy, do I miss it. So for those who don't have anybody that they live with, you know, four-legged or two-legged, it's hell. Um, So what I encourage people to do, number one, is find ways to do nurturing touch for yourself. Hug yourself, massage, um, whether you use your hands or a massager, um, lotion, um, what else? Wrap yourself in blankets, um, heating pad, um, hug pillows. If you have stuffed animals, cuddle with stuffed animals. Um, I do virtual hugs with people in my life now. Find creative ways to get nurturing touch needs met. When they started calling it social distancing, I went, not social distancing, physical distancing. Humans are social creatures. We need each other to survive. Um, So I'm a firm advocate of nurturing touch by consent. 
So it's scary to think about about that. There was just an article that came out today in the Philadelphia Inquirer that I was interviewed for that talked about that, um, that we may not, I mean, I can't, I can't foresee a time when we will never be able to hug again. But I, you know, it's, it's scary to think that something that is vital for human survival psychological and physiological is we're being deprived of because of this virus. So my crystal ball isn't working to say when it'll be safe to hug again, but the optimistic in me is saying it's going to happen. It, it has to, we can, you know, again, we can't survive as a species, not touching each other. Yeah. And I think you bring up some great points. And, and of course, um, I'm, I'm a firm believer in mind body relationship mm -hmm. and uh, as it as it affects people in my world and with you know chronic lung diseases anxiety and depression are a big component mm -hmm. so if you if you have somebody at home now who's feeling sad and isolated can you talk about some of the um available you know methods they can seek help uh, mm -hmm. from their own home sure absolutely and interestingly you mentioned the, the lung condition i have chronic asthma had pneumonia two years ago. I had a heart attack six years ago. And what I understand, from, again, from a mind-body perspective, is that it's about grief, for me at least, that it's unresolved grief. So have a good cry, first of all. Don't hold back your tears. Let yourself feel everything. Because what we resist persists. The emotions that we deny just come back up and bite us in the butt. Um, if you have people that you can cry with in your home, you do that. If they're not in your home, call friends. Zoom is an amazing invention. Um, I think, you know, how they, they talk about in um, every year they come up with new terms and words for, for the dictionary. I think unmute yourself is going to be <laughs> this year's, one of them at least. So have Zoom calls. If you're seeking therapy, find a good therapist, check with your insurance company to see who's in network and set up a telehealth session with them. Because again, most, from what I know, most therapy practices are still doing this online. Mm -hmm. um, there are other supports and resources. Um, if somebody is experiencing um, if, you know, addiction, for example, that hasn't gone away. Uh, there are people that are still drinking and drugging to deal with their emotions. So um, AA has a, a website. It's um, well, actually it's 12 step in general. And the website is the number 12, 12 step hyphen online.com. You can find an online meeting. Um, suicide hotline. There are people that are feeling like, why bother? What kind of world is going to be out there when it's done? So there's a 24-7 talk, talk line. It's 800-273-8255 or T-A-L-K. They're, you know, everywhere, anywhere. Um, and then the other sad, you know, I mean, it's all sad, but one of the most challenging parts is there are people who are in abusive relationships who are trapped with their abuser. So um, there's a national domestic violence hotline, 800-799-7233. Um, then if you, are, if you can't make the phone call, you can text capital, all caps, love, L-O-V-E-I-S. So it's love is. And if you, you text it to 22522. Um, if you are hearing challenged or deaf, um, there's a TTY line. 800-787-3224. Um, so that's for you know, domestic violence hotlines. Uh, I encourage people to get support the best they can. Well, well, Edie, th this has been really um, helpful. And I think, you know, you've provided a lot of great information that tackles the other end of what, what you know, is equally distressing for folks aside mm -hmm. from the medical and physical aspects of it. This is a major, major component. And it's so nice to have a resource 
and folks just like yourself out there who care and uh, are teaching people how to learn to care again about not only themselves, but each other. So thank you very much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. In fact, you, you read my mind again, because my last line was going to be, this is about we, not just me. Um, that, you know, we need to get through this together. And it's not just a tagline, it's the truth. So as we close, I'm going to offer you guys, if you, if you want. I'll uh, take a virtual hug. Thank okay, you. There we go. Thank you. All right. And now we're on to our last segment, which is where we're going to take on some of your questions. Um, we uh, had, had quite a, a variety over the last few weeks um, since our last episode, and uh, we'll, we'll get into them. So um, one of the big ones that uh, we've, we've touched on is why is it taking so much longer now to get results? We, we had kind of this bimodal phase where early in the pandemic, it was very difficult to get test results within uh, you know, a day or two. Most cases, it was seven, eight days. Then we got to a point where that time compacted and there was a lot of the rapid testing and, and turnaround within one, maybe two days. And now it seems like it's stretched out again. And we're looking at, in some cases, uh, seven, eight day turnaround times. I've even heard as much as 10, which sounds crazy, but uh, people are reporting this. So um, the, the thing to focus on is we are testing at greater rates and, and greater frequency than we did. Um, even you know two months ago, part of the reason for that is the uptick of cases in states we've mentioned before: Florida, Georgia, um, Texas, Arizona. So they're consuming resources of testing equipment. There is a finite number of labs and test reagents and equipment that can be run. And, and even though um, the techniques have been ramping up the production and how many you can do in a day, there is a physical limitation of that. So. Uh, maybe a few weeks ago, we were in a better place where we had a lot of capacity and the labs could get to them quicker, turn them around. You got a result in two days. Those labs are now overwhelmed. Um, and labs don't just pop up. It's, you know, it's not like a Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts where one pops up next to the other and they're just running tests. It's not so simple. So that really is the reason why that turnaround time has lagged. And the quick test or the rapid turnaround is being prioritized uh, toward patients that need to be admitted to the hospital because obviously if they're in the emergency room, they can't sit there for two to five to six days figuring out if they have COVID or not because you don't want them to go in and then pass it on to other patients. So that's where a lot of that is being prioritized. So if you're saying, why can't I go into the local uh, walk-in clinic and just get you know a test that turns around in two hours, that's the main reason why. Um, so good question. And we'll keep an eye on that as things go forward because it is going to change, obviously. Maybe the solution is to have Starbucks do the testing. There you go. Right? You know, free like one, one latte, one test. <laughs> uh, next question we got was, uh, was about uh, flu shots. Uh, we're going to be hearing again real soon about flu shots. Actually, it's August right now. Uh, is it safe to get it during the pandemic? So not only is it safe to get it during the pandemic, but it's highly recommended and, you know, more so than ever. So as a primary care physician and, you know, as, as Dr. Valentino will tell you, Prevention of flu is one of the great things that we can do. Now, the flu shots aren't always perfect. They always do reduce the risk of certain strains. They do have to guess strains about six months ahead of time, so it's a very imperfect shot. But any benefit that you get is better than the 0% benefit you get from not getting the vaccine. So more so than ever, you want to stamp out or one respiratory disease this winter, we can do it with the flu. Get your shots reach out to your primary care physician, go to their office and get their shot when they start giving them. They will start to come in soon, probably the next two to three weeks at local pharmacies. I don't recommend getting them so soon. We know there's a bit of a shelf life 
on flu shots where the maximum uh, use is the maximum efficacy is going to be probably within four to six weeks of getting the shot and it does tail off. So the sweet spots probably end of September, October. Mm-hmm. We do know that the COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus can create co-infection with the flu. Uh, we know there's about 27 to 30% co-infection rate with other respiratory viruses last time around when this pandemic all started along with COVID-19. So if we can eliminate one pretty nasty respiratory virus and take that out of the mix and worry just about the COVID-19, that would be great. You don't want to have both. You're going to wind up seeing Dr. Valentino before you know it. So unless you have an excellent reason not to get the flu shot, and many of you don't have an excellent reason, your best friend's neighbor whose knee started itching after they got it is not a great reason, please talk to your primary care doctor about getting it. Think about that September, early October timeframe to get it for maximal protection. Absolutely now is a greater time than ever in the history, our histories that we've lived through to get the flu shot. It is a safe vaccine. And if we can help get rid of one nasty virus, let's do it. And the flu shot will not give you the flu. It will make your arms sore. It might make you feel feverish. It might make you feel like you've got a cold. That means your immune system's working and it's doing the right thing. So you're not gonna get the flu from the flu shot. Um, And that, you know, brings us to another. So, you know, we talk about things in prevention. Um, Everybody's got concerns about chronic lung disease and COVID and asthma being one of the two major um, lung diseases alongside COPD that is prevalent in the population. Um, A lot of questions I've gotten from asthma patients. Uh, I, you know, I'm on inhalers. Uh, I'm on a number of different medicines through the inhaler, typically a combination agent with an inhaled steroid and a long acting beta agonist. We call them LABAs. Uh, sometimes people are also taking llamas, not the furry uh, mammal, but L-A-M-A, um, but a different class of drug. Um, is it safe to stay on them? Uh, should I change? Uh, so if you asked me this question in March, we didn't really have a good answer because there was some fear about um, steroids being uh, immunosuppressant to the point where it would allow more viral entry replication and maybe it would ramp the whole thing up. Now, as we've been hitting on, uh, steroids have proven to be very helpful in COVID. And there is uh, no evidence showing that people on inhaled steroids are worse off uh, in getting or the severity of COVID. And the other upside is that if your asthma is well controlled at baseline through drugs like this, you're, like, you're less likely to have severe complications um, and wind up in the hospital from, let's say, um, an asthma exacerbation than, you know, if you're not taking your meds, you're uncontrolled, those kind of things. Those are the people who tend to get into more trouble. So if you have the ability now to get that asthma control stabilized, uh, work with your doctor on a good asthma control plan, uh, make sure you've got some uh, plans in place for when you do start getting a flare up, uh, treating it early and not kind of toughing it out and just taking an albuterol nebulizer for days on end. Um, steroids are a bit more of our friend now. So um, please don't change your medicines. Please don't stop your inhalers uh, and talk to your docs uh, about, um, you know, the next steps if you have concerns about that. Yeah, great points, especially, you know, back in March, we had concerns about the ACE inhibitors as well because of this ACE2 receptor data on how this virus works. Steroids, we were a little fearful of as well. Never stop medications before reaching out to one of us, please. So that's the learning point there. Uh, The final question we got this week is more of a fun question. It was, you know, sports 
What are your thoughts? What's going to happen? Again, we, we don't have a crystal ball. If we did, we both wouldn't be doing this show. We'd be betting on the winner of, of the, uh, the upcoming ba- basketball game and getting out of this profession altogether. But uh, baseball has had a couple bumps in the road. And uh, the reason is they are not working with the bubble system that we're seeing in the NBA and the NHL. The NHL starts picking up again today. NHL is putting all their teams in the two cities, half go to Edmonton and half go to Toronto, two wonderful Canadian cities to our north. They're in a bubble environment where they will be in hotels and going to restaurants and everything will be within this bubble. Players are being tested very frequently. Same thing with the NBA down in Orlando where all the teams who have a legitimate shot at the playoffs are being kept ideally under wraps. Baseball chose not to go that route uh, for many reasons. And what we're seeing now is infection. We're seeing Florida Marlins being ravaged by uh, coronavirus. 25 people in the team in the front office infected. Uh, the Phillies who played them last week had a shutdown Citizens Bank Park and couldn't play any more baseball because the opposing team had infections and two positive cases on the Phillies. The Yankees were supposed to come into town. So this becomes a big mishmash of contingencies, which I am not sure how baseball is going to deal with. Uh, they are not necessarily following the same rules that the NBA and the NHL are who are setting themselves up for success. I don't see the baseball season Going all the way, I don't want to be a pessimist here. I love watching live sports, but too many variables here. These guys are going home. They're going out. They're having fun. And it's too tough to maintain that bubble environment. So baseball, I think, is going to have major challenges, even though they're an outside sport, which favors their success. Whereas basketball in the NHL, NBA and the NHL, using this bubble environment, may have greater success based on the fact that they're really taking into account a lot of other infection risks and trying to 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 uh keep those at bay so time will tell obviously love watching live sports they're very strange without fans and the piped in noise but it is absolutely better than watching some of the other live sports that have been on no offense uh, czechoslovakian ping pong <laughs> full agreement there um so that brings us to the end of episode 10 uh, for episode 11 which we hope to have out in uh, two weeks Um, We're going to really try to dig into that uh, panel of teachers that we've been talking about. Um, So that'll be in in a key time when schools are kind of getting ready to ramp up and uh, the ever-changing plans on how that's going to look. So we're going to hear right from people that are working uh, in those trenches, uh, teaching the students. And um, keep sending us your suggestions for guests. Uh, We have a couple of ideas in mind, but we like hearing from Uh, folks that you want to hear from uh, to get their perspective on how this uh, pandemic has affected them in their personal and professional lives. In the interim, keep sending us uh, questions to between two, that's T-W-O-Docs at gmail.com. We hope you stay safe. We hope you enjoy somewhat of the rest of the summer uh, while August is rolling in and tune in in a couple of weeks. Thank you.